Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. Today, I'm with a guest, James Guzman. He's the host of the Borderless podcast, a pioneering podcast that was talking about, you know, residency and citizenship programs in Latin America all the way back in 2015. So he's been around a long time. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for, for, for a long time, and it really helped me early on in my journey. So James, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on. So uh, where, where are you right now? I'm in Guadalajara. Guadalajara, okay, not too far away. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. very cool. And you in San Miguel? I'm in San Miguel de Allende. Uh, it's about three and a half hours away, for those that don't know. Been here uh, around eight years now, and I'm now fully expatted out down here. I got friends, family, uh, a wife, and all that stuff down here. So this is my uh, my hometown now. That's awesome. And <laughs> this is random, but... You know, when I used to hear about San Miguel de Allende a couple of years ago, I would always call it Allende, uh, Prince, like, but, but, you know, as I've spent more time, Mexicans just call it San Miguel. They don't even say Allende. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, St. Mike, St. Mike, they have different names and stuff <laughs> like that, but yeah, but there's different San Miguel's in different countries, but yeah, in Mexico, people know it as, as San Miguel, but you just say that and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's like, ah, voy a San Miguel, and then that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, the, the Allende comes from Ignacio Allende. Ignacio Allende is, you know, kind of like George Washington of Mexico. And he um, he was from here, and he had a house in Central. You can go to see his house. And that's why they just added the San Miguel de Allende, Ignacio Allende. That's awesome. And so uh, I think maybe to get started, the best thing to do would be give a little bit of an introduction to the audience, uh, who you are, talk about, you know, the borderless, pro, uh, borderless podcast and some of the stuff that you've been involved with and how you got to living, uh, the expat lifestyle. Okay. Well, so I first, uh, let's see, I first moved out of the States 2008, um, well around then. So, uh, I was in the Navy and I was on the, the USS Baton for four years and while I was there, I got involved in real estate pretty young. I, I bought my first house when I was 20. And this was in the early 2000s so, or mid-2000s. So we're talking about 2005 around there. And uh, what, 2004, 2005? And uh, I thought, you know, this was really the way to, uh, to wealth. You just continue to buy houses. Uh, they were extending credit like crazy to a lot of people. And so I just continued to buy real estate and, you know, rental houses and stuff like that, um, going to cash flow meetups, you know, Robert Kiyosaki is a very popular author and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. like so many people at that time, I really overextended myself a lot. And uh, that was a really waking up moment for me because I lost a ton of equity in my, uh, uh, in the rentals that I had in the United States. And, you know, uh, I, I wasn't as strategic as I should have been. I mean, I was 21, 22. So, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of um, experience, that kind of stuff. And uh, so I just basically had, you know, I, I wasn't able to keep up with all the rental property that I had bought and I had overextended myself on. So I just did a kind of a strategic default for with the uh, rental properties that I had. And I uh, used the GI Bill and I went to study international business in Madrid, Spain. So I lived there for three years and that was great. Um, you know, it was just phenomenal uh, studying uh, international business, also economics. Uh, there's a economics professor that's kind of world famous. His name is 
Jesus Huerta de Soto, who was a, a student of Rothbard. And uh, so that was nice being able to, uh, you know, listen to his lectures and also hang out with uh, all his PhD students and stuff like that. I didn't actually do the PhD program. I thought about it, but I was like, what am I going to do with the PhD in economics? I mean, are you really going to teach? I don't really want to teach. So I felt like, you know, you could learn it, read books and stuff like that. And you don't really, I didn't feel like the, um, the actual title was going to help me at all. So, um, and then after that, I got a job as, but basically a commodities broker, uh, in, in Barbados, uh, Peter Schiff is kind of a popular, uh, financial analyst. He used to be on TV a lot, not so much anymore. Um, you know, he's right now, I guess he's most known for being kind of a crypto bear, maybe the biggest Bitcoin bear, but, um, I really enjoyed, learned a lot from him in 2008, learning about the federal reserve and, and, uh, the economy and stuff like that. So after I got out of college, I got a job with him and I was one of the first handful of brokers that we started Euro Pacific bank out of, uh, it was actually out of St. Vincent, but we lived in Barbados and, uh, and then they since then have moved it to Puerto Rico. Um, and, uh, that was okay, but uh, there were some other opportunities that came down, and, and so I ended up moving to uh, Acapulco, and I sold real estate there. I wrote for a what used to be a financial newsletter, and um, and yeah, so that uh, people started to get to know me and things like that. And what I would do is I would post my uh, what I would write. I was getting paid to write articles for this financial newsletter, and I would just. I created my own blog, borderless blog, and would just repost it, you know, a couple of weeks after on my own blog, started to get my own email audience. Then I had a friend of mine who was also down here when I moved to, uh, I got out of San, uh, Acapulco. I was there for about two years. And, um, and then I moved down here to San Miguel de Allende and, uh, I met a, fr a friend of mine who moved out at the, at the same time. And he happened to be a, a voice talent and has decades of experience in the radio. And that's, uh, Jonathan Lockwood. And so we, we started the podcast together because he already had a, a setup weird, you know, so it was pretty easy for us to do that. That was early days in podcasting. A lot, not a lot of people um, mm -hmm. were doing it back then. And uh, so, yeah. And so it's, we, we were doing once a week and we were doing it pretty, uh, re you know, regularly. And I was also doing a lot of YouTube videos and I was writing more back then. And, uh, and yeah, so I, so I came here, I, I started doing, uh, uh, real estate. I worked with Caldwell Banker uh, here in town, and um, it just then I just started doing you know affiliate marketing, things like that. And uh, yeah, since then I've you know done a lot of things with real estate here. I was in, you know had a vacation rental company, um, and I also uh, sell uh, health insurance and property insurance for expats and for anybody that's down here. Um, so, and, and, you know, really anywhere actually. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's what I've been doing now and I'm pretty much settled here and, uh, yeah, loving life. That's awesome, man. And thanks for that summary. Uh, there, there's so many little pieces there that I could use as like jumping off points, but we might as well start with the first one, which is that, um, you said you studied in Spain, um, under a professor that I wouldn't be able to recite the name, but you said that he, he learned from Rothbard. And so m most people might not be familiar with who Rothbard is. So I assume you're talking about Murray Rothbard from the Austrian school, right? Yeah. Yeah. Murray Rothbard, uh, who was the direct student of Ludwig von Mises and from the Mises Institute is what, what he was founded. And, uh, so, um, 
there's really only two students of uh, Rothbard that are active at all. And it's Jesus Huerta de Soto is his name. And uh, Hans Hermann Hopp, who lives in Turkey. Those are the only two students. And uh, yeah, so the, uh, De Soto's is interesting. He has a, he also he has a, a big insurance company and he uh, teaches, he's written several big books, you know, on economics. And um, a lot of people come from all over the world to study with him there. And he started this program there at a, at a public university. I mean, the guy is loaded. You know, he drives around like a gold Bentley. So it's not like he does it for money but he just enjoys uh, teaching this program that he pretty much just created at a public university. Very cool. And I can sort of see a little bit of a, a, a sort of pathway in terms of how you went from sort of studying Austrian economics, which was much less known at the time, uh, to maybe that introduced you a little bit to Peter Schiff and maybe you applied uh, to a job with him through that. Um, mm -hmm. And then I could see also how that would have led you early into crypto because you were having crypto guests on your podcast in 2015. But um, yeah. how did you like first hear about Peter Schiff and how did that come about getting a job with him like oh. 15 years ago? Yeah. So um, honestly, I, I, so Ron Paul, you know, he was Ron Paul's financial advisor. And like mm -hmm. I said, in 2008, I was trying, once I, you know, this had happened to me where I had, you know, misjudged. Uh, what to do in, in the real estate market and misjudged the market in general. I went back to the drawing board and I was trying to figure out what the hell happened. And that was at the same time uh, Ron Paul has, had his uh, presidential campaign and Peter Schiff was talking about a lot of things. He was talking about the Federal Reserve and a lot of this stuff. And so I really, you know, really dived into all that, you know, the housing market and how it's, you know, uh, the business cycle and all that. And uh, so that's when I, I just... Um, I really listened to his stuff a lot, learned a lot from him. And I, I, when I got out of college, I said, I, I just want a job with him. So I called into his radio show. I went to his office in California. I went to his office in New York. Um, I talked to his brother. I talked to people he worked that worked for Europe Pacific and I did whatever I could. I just wanted that job. <laughs> and so eventually I got it, you know. And I, I totally remember watching Peter Schiff actually more back then than I do now. I know he's still kicking and, and talking about gold and all that. But back then when it was really like audit the Fed and the Ron Paul and everything, yeah, I was really into that. And uh, I, I totally remember everything was like Euro Pacific Capital, Euro Pacific Capital, like buy your, buy your gold and silver with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shift gold, it's called now. Shift gold. Yeah. And so you've, you, I guess that means that you've um, been a real estate agent or been involved in the brokering of real estate, selling of real estate uh, internationally for a long time, talking about it, investing about it and in a lot of different jurisdictions. Yep, sure. Mm -hmm. So like in the Caribbean, like in Barbados, St. Vincent, et cetera, and then now in Mexico. And I think it's like a deadly combo when... Because it's something I think about too, like with the the My Latin Life pod, uh, podcast or or platform we have, is that you know maybe could be looking into uh, doing something with real estate in Latin America in the future. What what opportunities are you seeing? And um, yeah, talk to us a little bit about maybe what makes it different investing in in Latin America and the Caribbean. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it definitely can be more challenging. Um, you know, the game is completely different than people are going to be used to in the United States. So uh, I, 
assume that a lot of people that are listening are from the United States. Um, and so, you know, you have the 30 year fixed mortgage. Uh, you also have a lot of tax deductions and other types of things that go along with that 30 year fixed mortgage. That's very low. You're not going to get that kind of uh, loan uh, in Latin America. And so, you know, certainly not in Mexico, you can get loans, but for the most part, it's a cash market. The loans are going to be, you know, seven, eight, nine percent interest. They're going to be 10, 15 years. Uh, you're going to have to put a lot down. So, you know, uh, the the real estate market in the United States is very manipulated um, because of the fact that, you know, it's, it's not really rational for a, a bank to give just anybody a, a loan where they put down like, you know, 3% or 5% and then they're paying 3% interest or whatever it is now, you know, for 30 years. That's, that's a... Uh, it's not what you're going to get in a regular, uh, you know, like healthy market. So anyways, um, so down here, uh, you know, there, there's different things that you can do. Uh, normally you have to have cash or at least you have to have access to some sort of private money. Um, and, you know, you can use uh, a property in Latin America if that's your, say it's your uh, a place that you're thinking about living. You can use it to get residency depending on the country. You can use mm-hmm. it as a, uh, you know, a, a place for uh, an address outside of the country that you can use for a variety of reasons. Um, and then, you know, uh, that's one thing that I liked about the, uh, you know, the vacation rental business is that you can basically, uh, you know, use it to come down half the year, a couple months out of the year, whatever. And then when you're not here, you can rent it out, uh, you know, weeks at a time, months at a time to other people, you know, especially if it's in tourist destinations and places that, that people like to go. So you can, you know, make money on that. And, uh, and you could do it for immigration purposes or other types of, you know, let's say, uh, tax purposes or something like that. And, um, so yeah, that's, I mean, uh, that's basically what I see is some of the, the, the good things about having real estate in a, in a different jurisdiction than where you might be now. Mm-hmm. And I think this is becoming more relevant than ever. Um, you've probably seen that just sort of in the post COVID world in the past year or two, uh, the, uh, popularity of second residencies and second passports has grown dramatically, the interest in doing it, and therefore the interest in buying real estate internationally. And then that also kind of leads people to that same sort of line of thinking like, oh, you know, I'll buy it, use it as an address, but then also rent it out on Airbnb. So you were really, really early in this. Um, I know you're not doing Airbnb as much anymore, but you were the first pe- person like having like Airbnb guests on your podcast and stuff like that back in 2015. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, what's cool about it is that especially with the whole, so, you know, another thing that I'm not sure if, if your audience is familiar with, but it's called PT theory, uh, perpetual tourists or prior taxpayer, or all, they have all different things that the PT stands for. But, you know, so the idea is that um, you have different flags in different countries. So you have different assets in, in countries that, um, you know, that are good for that type of asset. You have bank accounts in, in countries where uh, they have good uh, banks. You have residency where that is going to behoove you uh, for tax reasons or immigration reasons. And so you kind of strategically set up your life in that kind of way. And uh, yeah, so that doing the uh, vacation rental um, game is, is interesting in the PT theory because you could basically plant a flag with an investment property there. Another thing that's great about it is that uh, if you have a business, you know, you start up a company 
that is you know a vacation rental management company, then pretty much everything that you buy for your house, it's all part of the business. So it's all tax deductible. Nothing's in your name. It's in the name of your company, which gives you other layers of protection. And so, you know, basically, uh, yeah, you could have a house that's, that's, you know, not in your name that you can use as a, to build a, a residency and um, save taxes. And so it's, you know, it's a, a great to kind of strategic business. Definitely a lot of important tactical stuff in what you're saying. Uh, but I think it's also cool to, would be cool to talk a little bit about the PT movement, uh, the flag theory movement as well. Cause I think actually a lot of the new <laughs> generation coming up of, you know, people watching nomad capitalists and stuff like that, they might not be familiar with the PT movement and some, and some of the early, uh, the early sort of, um, eras of this idea. So there was that, you probably know, there was like that one American guy who wrote the book, um, Your Freedom or Your Life, something like that. What's it called? It was Grandpa. Uh, sorry? Grandpa, I believe is, the, his name. Yeah. That was, that was his, how we would, you know, he wrote using that name. <laughs> Here we go. Your life or your freedom. Anyway, I'll try to find the book, but maybe you can okay. just talk to us a bit about uh, what it was like in the early days with the PT movement. Uh, talk a little bit about what it is. I guess you did f f and like sort of how it's evolved over time. Yeah. So it was actually a, a theory that was put together um, at, a while ago and uh, W.G. Hill and some other people I mentioned, Grandpa's this guy that used to write under this pen name and and, and was, sorry to uh, interrupt. I'm thinking of yeah. Harry Brown, who wrote uh, yeah. "Finding Freedom in an Unfree World." Unfree World, sure. Yeah, Harry Brown. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was that time period. I don't know that he really pushed the PT theory. I can't remember, but yeah, I mean, that it was that crowd for sure in that time period. Um, there's actually a book called PT, and uh, so uh, it, it was a time when there it was a lot easier to do a lot of this type of stuff because they had bear share uh, corporations and, you know, there's a lot, you know, there wasn't as much technological surveillance and things like that. And, uh, you know, the, basically the idea is that you would use the, you know, the, the, the system is set up the way it is. And, uh, you know, we know that a lot of companies pay very little tax. A lot of rich people pay very little tax. These laws are on the books. So why not utilize those tactics yourself? And so, you know, like I said, you can strategically look at, and so again, the, uh, I should go back and say the flag flag is about, uh, you know, boats. Okay. And on, in, at sea, different flags, different, um, boats will have different flags depending on where they are and where they want to dock and that kind of thing. And so you can have several flags that you use at a, at a different time. And so that they were using that and the original five flags was the business flag, passport or citizenship flag, the domicile residency flag, assets, and then what they called playgrounds. And so you would have, uh, you know, just to give you an example, you'd have your citizenship. See, this is one thing with Americans that you have to start with because basically you're screwed from the, from, the, from the beginning because if you have an American citizenship then you have to pay taxes every, everywhere in the world, or you have to file taxes at least everywhere in the world, um, mm -hmm. no matter where you are. I mean, you know, and so the idea of the the 
you know, PT theory was that you would have a citizenship flag and then you'd have a residency flag somewhere else. So you wouldn't have to file uh, taxes at, at your citizenship country. But if you're an American, you have to do that. So that's why a lot of people give or have ended up giving up their um, residence, their citizenships to the United States. And so the idea is you have your citizenship, you have your permanent residency and another in a, in a zero income tax uh, uh, jurisdiction. And, and uh, then you'd have a place where you do business, which, you know, uh, you incorporate um, and which has good business laws and that kind of thing. And then you would have um, where your assets, meaning like a bank jurisdiction where you like, uh, you know, the banks there, a lot of people use Singapore or, or some places and, Seychelles or whatever, things like that. Uh, And then the last one was playgrounds and playgrounds is a place that uh, is inexpensive and that you, uh, you enjoy being. And, you know, there you're basically always a tourist. So, you know, you have no uh, business there. You have no residency there, no nothing. You're just passing through all the time and you spend time there and it's inexpensive and you like it. And hopefully it has a little to no um, sales tax. And so that's kind of the original setup. Now, people have gone a lot into um, more online stuff where, where you would put your servers. So you'd have a server flag. You'd have, uh, you know, other things, you know, where you have your email flag and, you know, different things like that to get a lot yeah. more. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Christoph Habermann, he, uh, he's a, a German guy. He's gotten a lot more into, uh, in, in, you know, more complex into the flag theory and written about it. He's putting together more. Uh, you know, PDFs and things like that about that. But, uh, you know, another thing I would add is that it's, you know, in my, you know, the way I see it, it's, it's, it's gotten a lot harder. Um, it's, you know, it's hard, you know, it's harder to uh, pretty much, there's no uh, privacy in the financial system anymore. There's no privacy online that you mm-hmm. can really hide or, you know, keep your anonymity and stuff like that. It's very tough. I mean, uh, you, you can, there are different things that you can do, but for the most part, it's just a lot, it's a lot harder than it used to be. Yeah. Uh, thanks. And that's a, a really great summary. And so, yeah, the general idea is to sort of, uh, diversify or internationalize your life into various jurisdictions such that no one jurisdiction has complete control over you. Uh, cause you know, these situations happen over and over again, whether it be, you know, Venezuela or more recently in the Ukraine or things like that, where if you are just 100% tied to a country for your income, uh, your assets, your banking, um, you know, everything like that, uh, that, that, that's a rug that can be pulled away from you. And, um, I also wanted to sort of clarify what you said regarding sort of like the residency flag, um, it's a bit confusing because yes, for Americans, it's, it's going to be, um, a strategy that's executed on differently. Uh, but it still applies, you know, just sort of diversifying, but I guess the general idea is you would have, you basically, you want to be a tax resident of a country where you do not earn your income. So, and you'd be a resident of a territorial tax country, ideally. So it'd be a resident of, uh, in Latin America, that might be like Guatemala, Nicaragua, Panama, something like that. And you're a resident of that country, but you're going to earn your money somewhere else in the world. And since you're a resident of a territorial tax country, um, that sort of extra territorial income uh, wouldn't need to be reported in many situations. Um, and uh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And there's also a guy named Harry Schultz that popularized it. I think he originally came up with the idea. And yeah, it was basically mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's why I thought that um, the vacation rental business kind of you know, aligned well with that type of thing. So yeah, when, when you hear, it's not mentioned a lot, but like you said, when you hear nomad capitalists and a lot of, you know, uh, global wealth protection and, you know, Bobby Casey and all these other type of people, um, that's basically what they're talking about is, is perpetual, uh, travel, Mm -hmm. um, theory. And, and that's why it's so good to have you as a guest on the program because you can kind of help tie like the old generation of like PT flag three guys to the new generation of people who where it's almost just like normal people now who are either di- young digital nomads or they're just old people looking to retire and they're just sort of concerned about, okay, I want to live in Costa Rica. I want some jungly vibes in my life, but uh, you know, I have a 401k and I have like shares that are vesting and this and that. And like, how do I like manage this whole transition? Um, so we said a couple names. I thought it'd be maybe useful to give people, uh, you know, cause you just, I, you're just such a, probably an encyclopedia of this stuff. Like people that, that, uh, if people want to go back and read the history that they could look up. So you mentioned that there's the PT perpetual traveler book, which was written by WG Hill. And that's a classic. There's Freedom in an Unfree World by Harry Brown. That's a classic. Uh, Mm -hmm. Harry D. Schultz, who wrote the the Harry Schultz Investment Letter. And I know he had a couple books um, that that talk about sort of PT concepts. Uh, You mentioned you have a friend, Christoph Haverman, something like that. Yeah, Haverman, yeah. It's German. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he does most who, of his stuff in, in German, but he does have English, an English, uh, website as well. Tax free today. Yeah. I've had him on my podcast. Yeah. Uh, so. tax free today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then who are, who are some of the other like OGs in the space that people could, could look up? Oh, uh, Bobby Casey. Uh, I've had, that's, that's the global wealth protection guy I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to, uh, so the financial newsletter that I said that, uh, I wrote for it was uh, the dollar vigilante. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't really recommend that, but I mean, that's one of the ones that, you know, recommend that newsletter, but, uh, that's one of the ones that, you know, was originally into all this type of stuff, obviously Doug Casey, you know, um, and, um, what, what was the, the, uh, Doug Casey, um, I forget the name of his, uh, he had a publication that he, so I know you had the Casey report, but I think he also had another one. Um, I can, yeah. I can go look, you know, there's so many people, uh, and I've had a lot of them on my, on my podcast too. Yep. Let's see if Simon Black, some. Simon Black, Black of Man. course. Yep. 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 That's another one. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I have to look here for a second. <laughs> so, uh, th- I mean, those are some of the big ones, but, um, yeah, I would say those are, those are probably big. another one that I say it's he didn't talk about PT, but uh, Richard Mayberry was also one of the people that were in that kind of uh, '90s libertarian camp. Uh, he's still mm-hmm. around, but he wrote a book called uh, "The Clippership Strategy." He actually wrote a whole series of books that were made to uh, homeschool uh, children, and mm-hmm. um, he wrote one called "The Clippership uh, Strategy," and. Uh, like I said, although it doesn't specifically talk about international living, what basically boils down to is he was saying that there, there, in when there was the gold rush, 
they made these ships that would travel the, the quickest possible ever from the East Coast to the West Coast, right? Because they had to get to California. And if they got back with the gold, that's the, the people that got back the quickest made the most amount of money. And that, that changed the economy a lot because you were able to obviously arrive in that place that, you know, uh, arrive in the East Coast uh, with, with the gold first. And then when everybody else would come, the prices would go up. So you'd want to get there first, yeah. right? So it's kind of like with inflation and and, uh, and that kind of thing. But he described the Clipper Strip strategy as living in a place that he calls in the book uh, sinkholes, which are areas that are stifled economically for a number of reasons, or maybe the money spigot doesn't get there, right? So, you know, obviously there are places where, you know, understanding um, uh, the boom and bust cycle and uh uh, you know, fiat currency, you know that uh, when you have different stimulus and, and different things like that, uh, that are given to the public or given to the top, you know, that that money goes somewhere right first. And that that's what bring mostly in different specific big cities. You know, you could say like it mostly goes to New York or Los Angeles, something like that. Washington, D.C., obviously. But the idea is that you would get under some spigot of money. And then you would live in a place where that money doesn't normally arrive so that the the prices would be, you know, lower, stifled and not and you're not living in a, a place with high inflation, but you have access to that kind of money. So he was talking about doing uh, newsletter subscriptions and stuff like that, that you would be able to do that and live in another place. But now you can do so many things online and use the same strategy. And uh, so I think that has a lot to do with the with the PT as well. Right. So kind of like earn dollars, spend pesos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Geo arbitrage. Oh, another one obviously is, you know, uh, Tim Ferriss, you know, he wrote about geo arbitrage and, and that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. all, even, uh, uh, yeah, the four or even, uh, the guy that wrote the truth, Neil, uh, Strauss, he had a whole book about PT theory. I was going to ask you about that too. Yeah. Emergency, mm -hmm. uh, the book that came out, I read that, you know, he got, uh, St. Kitts citizenship. Uh, this would have been early on. This was definitely like a decade mm -hmm. ago. So before, well before nomad capitalist even came out, mm -hmm. um, Neil Strauss, who was, you know, like a rock music reporter and, and all that, uh, he went and sort of looked into the five flag theory. Um, you must have basically already been in the space by the time that book came out. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have any inter interaction with uh, Neil Strauss or or any of the other guys that we've we've mentioned? Oh yeah, a lot of them. I mean, I know him well. I, I, no, Neil Strauss, no, I don't, I don't know anybody. But yeah, sure, a lot of the other people I know him for sure. And uh, yeah, and, and another thing you were alluding to uh, regarding the the Clipper ship, and actually you mentioned ships before. And this is actually one of the analogies I use to sort of relate it to people is, you know, how like an extremely high percentage of uh, boats or ships operating internationally are operating either under a Panamanian flag or a Liberian flag. And so you have something like 10% of the world's shipping fleet runs a Liberian flag, obviously the, the Liberia, the country in Africa, but this, these ships are never landing in Liberia. No one's like Liberian and the crew. It's not owned by Liberians really. Um, it's basically a flag of convenience. So Liberia and Panama are the two most popular for shipping, uh, which 
people take advantage of for, you know, the, the, the favorable sort of laws and incentives uh, that those jurisdictions have for registering ships. And so what I'm getting at here, excuse me, is how you could actually think of your own life as if you were a ship and, <laughs> and how you could register yourself, uh, uh, you know, theoretically in Panama or in Liberia or somewhere else where it's a favorable jurisdiction and, you know, you're running around and doing different stuff and you're just sort of using the most favorable jurisdiction available to you, right? Because so, you know, the, the way it generally works or has worked for hundreds of years is just, you know, you're born in the Netherlands. Cool. Like everything you do is in the Netherlands. You're born in Canada. Cool. Everything you, you do is in Canada. And, you know, when you take that sort of higher level perspective, that eagle eye, you say, look, like this ship does not need to be registered in Canada. We can register this ship in Panama and, you know, save money on taxes and have greater, you know, access to the, the high seas, so to speak. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it just makes sense. And especially nowadays, it's just, it's, um, you know, so easy. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, setting up these types of things is easy. There's a lot of information online. Uh, another thing I wanted to add is that, uh, another thing with ships is, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about false flag, right? A false flag event. I guess I think a lot of people <laughs> have heard of that before that, that was the ships, yeah. They're the, you know, they were pirate ships or other type of ships that would roll up the flag of another, you know, opposing, uh, uh, country or, or fleet or whatever. And then they would attack somebody to make it think it was somebody else. So that's another kind of right. thing with ships. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that, um, you know, and also it's just like Neil Strauss was talking about, you know, emergency. That was the whole idea is he wasn't doing it necessarily for, for tax purpose, but he was doing it for in case of emergency. Right. So that's another thing is that, uh, you know, if you have, I think that we've seen that in the last two years that, you know, having a second residency, citizenship, uh, home, whatever, is going to behoove you if anything happens. You never know what can happen uh, in the coming years. Uh, you know, we see a lot of things, you know, uh, economic degradation, supply chain problems, energy shocks, different types of crisis. If you have different um, options, then uh, then that's going to be very helpful coming down the road, you know, just to try to think you know, ahead to, uh, to just have a, a, you know, some different options for that type of stuff. Definitely. I think everyone agrees that having, uh, options and having multiple passports residencies is net net a good thing. Like there's very little downside to having multiple citizenships. The problem is it's almost, uh, I, and maybe a couple of years ago, actually, even like Canadians or Europeans might've said, Oh, I don't see the point. I already have the best passport. I think now even largely those people, I've kind of uh, gotten over the the hump and have said, okay, yeah, obviously multiple passports is a good thing, even if it's acquiring a quote unquote worse passport. So, you know, maybe I have Canadian buddies that are entitled to Jamaican citizenship or whatever it is, Greek citizenship. And before they might've said, oh, you know what? Like, it's not really like going to, you know, make a impact on my life really. Like, what's the point? just another thing to worry about. Whereas I think now uh, every, everyone's kind of like, got, you know, for the first time we've seen like travel restrictions in our lives, things like that. And so I think now people are starting to get like, yes, um, like net net, like all else being equal, it'd be better to have multiple citizenships. Um, the only, And then the question really becomes, okay, cool. Like everyone is down to have multiple passports. 
but it, now it becomes sort of like a, an, a question of effort and like, is it easy to do? How much is it going to cost me? How much time do I have to spend on the ground? What are the physical presence requirements? How long is it going to take? Things like that. And so I think that's a lot of what we're focusing on in my Latin life. And I think what a lot of the community can focus on is we don't really need to convince people anymore. We just need to find the, the, the countries that make the most sense for people's situations and just make it like easy enough where it makes sense. Cause not everyone can spend, you know, the six months plus a year needed, uh, to like be naturalization track, for example. Yeah. Well, it's a no brainer if, you know, if, if you haven't looked into it yet and you have some sort of, um, uh, heritage that you can trace back to somewhere like Italy or, uh, Ireland, uh, Sephardic Jews out of Spain, other, there are other ones that if you can trace your heritage back, not too far back, then, then you can get a, uh, Lithuania is another one. Then you can get a, um, a citizenship, uh, pretty easily. So that's, uh, I would say that if anybody has anything like that, you know, uh, definitely look into that and get that right away. There's no reason why you shouldn't do that. Um, other than that, then, you know, you have the, uh, you have to pay for it. Now, a lot of these programs are very expensive, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars that you pretty much just have to donate. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how many people have a hundred grand lying around, but, uh, they are, there are options. Also, uh, recently they've been talking about cracking down on those because, you know, Joe Biden was saying that they're basically being used by, uh, Russian oligarchs. And so they need to shut them down. Right. And so we'll see how those, those, uh, continue to go, but uh, they, uh, they, United States government has, looks like they're going to be leaning on the, uh, the countries that are offering those. And so we'll see. Um, and so other than that, you just kind of have to go and, and wait. Um, you know, uh, if you have a, uh, a girlfriend or a spouse, uh, from another country, then, you know, you can go ahead and get married in another country something like that. You can look into that, uh, whatever their, uh, citizenship or heritage is, you might be able to do something like that. And, um, also, uh, you know, having kids, people call it, you know, birth tourism, I guess in the United States, they mm-hmm. call it, uh, anchor babies, but, uh, you know, going somewhere to have a kid and then you automatically get, uh, get residency there, uh, here in Mexico, you can do that. You can come down. If you have a, a child here, you get the, the parents get permanent residency. So, um, yeah, so there's different things like that. And, th- and then once you get permanent residency, you have to wait for a while. Depends on the situation. And um, and then you can uh, get citizenship if you want. Although, you know, uh, you probably, you know, uh, Mexico is not a, a, you know, a tax haven. So um, might not be, you know, a good place to get uh, a citizenship. So it just depends on your situation. Yeah. And I actually had another guest on my program, uh, Martin Toomey, um, from the offshore consultancy group. And he, you know, we talked quite extensively about the Mexico program. Um, and it, it actually is a pretty good program. Um, question for you. So I, I assume you, you have, uh, either Mexican, uh, residency or citizenship at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Residency. Residency. Mm-hmm. So you've been there like eight years. You must be pretty much uh, more or less able to apply for naturalization. Yeah, well, uh, I will soon. But uh, for a long time, I was living just on a tourist visa so mm-hmm. for years and years. And have you done any other residency programs in Latin America or internationally? 
Me, no. No, I'm, just, I'm a resident here. I live here. You know, maybe I'm not the best example of the digital nomad thing anymore because I'm just kind of like, especially with the, with the 2020 and the, you know, all the restrictions and all this type of stuff. I just don't like, I just kind of like dug my heels in here. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I can move around internationally and stuff like that for the most part. I stay here. I don't, um, I'm, I'm like, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm more in the expat than digital nomad camp now. Definitely. No, but, uh, you know, and as I've mentioned, uh, you know, your podcast episodes uh, early on were extremely pioneering. So uh, you have episodes from uh, 2015 about residency in Uruguay, in Paraguay, Paraguay, um, uh, in, you know, an episode where you compare different Central American options. You have a mm-hmm. Panama episode. So you were really covering this stuff like really early on. And I remember I was before I even really like started my digital nomad journey. Um, I was, uh, listening to these episodes and it was helping me basically plan my future. And I'd say, Hmm, like, is there anything here that makes sense? How can I sort of, um, start getting the pieces aligned and, and, uh, start preparing to potentially do some of this. And, and so, uh, I don't, <laughs> it's tough cause I never know how much to like say or give away, but, um, uh, I have quote unquote, like looked into the, the Paraguay one I've gone down there, Panama as well, Mexico as well. So I've been actively involved in a lot of these programs, um, in Paraguay, you had for the Paraguay episode, you interviewed, uh, this guy, uh, Lonnie, what's his last name? Lonnie, uh, McRory, who was like, kind of like the most active guy in the Paraguay for expats group. And I think it was pretty much the only like full length interview he'd ever given. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realize that. I just did another one. Um, uh, and, uh, because there, uh, yeah, that's Paraguay, uh, Barry Cooper from never get busted. I had him uh-huh. on, uh, recently uh-huh. and he set up a, a Paraguay thing as well, but yeah, I remember that one from a while ago. And a lot of people were, because he was saying, he was also like criticizing people in Paraguay. And a lot of people were like, why is this guy, you know, <laughs> he's trying to help people get residency, but at the same time, he's like talking shit about the country. But anyways. I And I noticed that recently when I was doing research for this episode and I was like, wait, what? And I looked at the website and he had like a whole form for for people that would maybe want help for, with the Paraguay residency. And I was like, this is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We even uh, did one. Uh, we did one. One of the first ones uh, was uh, on renouncing. We did a whole episode on how how you can renounce your United States citizenship with a guy who did it, uh, Glenn Roberts, who's I believe he's a Paraguay. Yeah, and he had no other uh, citizenship. Yeah, and the he just renounced this guy. Yeah, the state guy. <laughs> I don't think it's on. Like- I, I was just looking at the feed and you know they erase it after 100 they erase they automatically erase your episodes so i think that one's erased i mean i still have it in my archives but it's not online anymore yeah and i'm looking at his wikipedia the man without a country and he was like one of the only people that was the u.s like ever allowed to be stateless because typically if you want to renounce your u.s citizenship they the requirement is you need to have another citizenship already um to fall back on. But this one guy, he basically got Paraguay to like write him a letter saying like, Oh, you can like live here stateless, blah, blah, blah. We'll give you like not a, 
a, a Paraguayan citizenship passport, but they give him some sort of like Paraguay stateless travel document. And so if anyone is interested sort of in like the history of statelessness, which sort of plays in the history of PT and, you know, renunciation, things like that, this Glenn Roberts situation is probably one of the unique cases that people would want to look at. Yeah. And so you're basically like, so you're put, you're, you're turning yourself into a refugee. I mean, right. So you, if you don't have a citizenship, um, there, there are actually millions of people that don't have citizenships on the planet. Okay. So mm-hmm. um, all over the world, people that just never get things like a social security number or passport or citizenship, or they don't have any dealing with nation states, right? Uh, a lot of indigenous groups and, and things like that. And the UN actually sees this as a humanitarian crisis and they consider them like refugees, right? Cause they want to get these people banked, right? So the, the unbanked is a big crisis that they see. And so they actually had a whole, um, you know, meeting about this and they have come to the cl- conclusion that everybody uh, has a right to a, a travel card. So you can get, some sort of a travel card from the UN, even if you don't have a citizenship that will allow you to uh, travel. But mm-hmm. as we all know, it depends on your your citizenship where you get a visa. So, you know, as an American citizen, you can come to Mexico and they'll see you're an American citizen. They'll give you, well, they used to just automatically give you six months. Now it's been less a lot of times. But um, since you're from the United States, you can come right in. Uh if you're if you're not, or if you don't have any citizenship, then that's going to be tough to really go anywhere. You have to apply ahead of time for a visa using your UN travel document. But uh, you know, technically, you're supposed to. You know, you have the right to uh, this travel document, a worldwide travel document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's definitely a couple of cases. There's uh, indigenous communities. There's people in like the Middle East where you know the like uh, people from like Kurdistan and stuff like that, where maybe like the uh, the country doesn't recognize minority groups, things like that. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, it, actually, I remember when I was in Paraguay in Asuncion, I met a guy who basically f- was following in Glenn Roberts' footsteps. And this is a guy that's off the radar. Like he doesn't have, you know, press. Uh, you wouldn't be able to look this up. But I met a guy that he gave up. He was in Paraguay. He gave up his U.S. citizenship prior to being accepted as a Paraguayan national. But he was living there and, and, you know, bought real estate there. And, and so he was stateless for like a year until his Paraguayan citizenship finally went through. And then he became uh, Paraguayan, and, uh, which was quite a feat in of itself. It was like a double feat, the stateless thing. And then also the fact that getting the Paraguayan citizenship is actually pretty hard. It's easy to get the residency, uh, but it's pretty tough to get the citizenship. Um, I imagine you, uh, you know, being in this for so long, you've seen lots of anecdotally, you've seen lots of people from Western countries that have successfully gotten passports in Latin American countries, I'm guessing in Mexico and, and elsewhere. Yeah, sure. I mean, Mexico to a lesser extent, but yeah, I, I know people that have, that have gotten them here and other places. Yeah, absolutely. But residencies and, and, um, and citizenship and, and, and you see, you know, different programs come and go. You see a lot of fraudulent stuff. Um, so, you know, you got to be careful and you got to jump on it. If there's a, if the government is, is uh, offering some specific program, a lot of times they'll just do it for a short period of time or something like that. But uh, but yeah, there's a lot of people that come down here and do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've seen a lot of 
programs come and go over the years. What do you think is the future of uh, these residency programs? Do you think that they're going to start going away? Do you think they'll just sort of up the requirements? Um, it's actually been, you know, everything's changing around a little bit, but a lot of things have been pretty steady state for the past, say, decade or so. Um, you know, rentista visas and pensionado visas and things like that. What do you see the future holds for Latin American residency programs? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, you know, each country is obviously different. Uh, I would say that, honestly, I think that over the next 10, 15 years or whatever, will probably be harder for Americans to get um, citizenships, uh uh, permanent residencies, residencies, or even visas to a lot of countries. I think that um, we'll probably see, you know, the United States not have the the kind of the prominence that it's had in the past. And uh, a lot of countries, you know, they're not going to be giving the uh, the kind of white glove treatment to uh, U.S. citizens as, as they have before. Uh, they might not even let them in at all. Um, I think, you know, a lot of, not you know, not everybody else, uh, not all non- uh, U.S. people uh, have animosity towards Americans, but uh, a lot of them do. And um, so I think that, you know, a lot of countries, you know, so like, for instance, in Brazil, um, you know, the Brazil, the uh, United States government was started putting on uh, more restrictions for Brazilians to go to the U.S. So Brazil just did the same exact thing to U.S. citizens. Right. So you can see a lot of that type of stuff, you know, tip for tat. Um, and um so, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think that um, the U.S. government is going to, you know, they're going to be tightening. They're not, you know, they're, they're going to want people to, uh, you know, they're going to use the new technology and, and uh, you know, uh, digital surveillance and all this type of stuff to stop uh, tax avoidance and uh, people trying to use these types of things, uh, you know, strategies um, individually. And so, yeah, I think that, you also have to look out for that. And, uh, you know, like I said before, uh, you know, all these different types of programs as far as barrier shares and, uh, you know, basically having private banking that no longer exists. So I think that's going to be probably, you know, even, uh, even more extreme in the future is probably, you know, probably, you know, the, the way that they'll be able to see where you are, where you're spending your money, if, you know, mm -hmm. what, uh, if you're receiving money, if you have some under the table business, they'll be able to see that if it's, if it's all digital. And so I think these are kind of the, the trends that, that we'll see. Yeah. And so if you don't mind me asking, so you knew about all these residency programs early on and some of them like Paraguay is like unbelievably easy, right? So I'm curious, like, is there any reason that you, you didn't do any of them? Yeah, I just didn't care. Uh, honestly, you know, I was, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, no, I just, I just was a tourist, you know what I mean? So I just did everything under, uh, under the radar. And I mean, I didn't have a bank account for years. I mean, now I do, but I didn't have, I just did all, uh, cash and basically would just, you know, use tourist visas everywhere. Which honestly, you know, it is a decent way to go. When I start, when you look at some of these residency visas, you start thinking, oh, I, like if I actually want to spend time here, maybe a, a tourist visa is better. I was just looking today at the Costa Rica residency program and you have to pay in 
it used to be 250 bucks a month into the healthcare program. Apparently, like just last month, it went up to 500 bucks a month. So you're spending six grand a month, three or six grand a year, uh, paying into the healthcare program in Costa Rica just to basically maintain the residency. Some people like it if they actually spend, uh, live there full time and make use of the program, I guess. But if you just want to maintain the residency, it's not the best. So yeah, it's, it's really like case by case. You got to kind of figure it out. But I, I honestly just find it extremely intellectually interesting. The idea of like setting up all these bases um, and just kind of like feeling like a, like a James Bond kind of guy, you know what I mean? Um, and so like over the years, have you, you must, have you like sort of personally helped a lot of people move to Latin America? I'm sure you've like, so what do you, you're, you're sort of like, they hear about you through your podcast or your writings, things like that, your email list. And then I guess you have a network of fixers and lawyers and real estate brokers in lots Mm -hmm. of different countries. And you sort of like play the the connector or middleman yeah yeah i mean i was doing uh several different countries in the past uh kind of concentrating on chile colombia brazil and mexico those kind of were the mm-hmm. big ones um mm-hmm. and uh puerto rico you know for the act 2022 which has now changed names um but you know honestly these days um i'm pretty concentrated on mexico i mean i do do um strategy calls with people if they're you know moving internationally, no matter where they're moving, mm-hmm. but these days I, I kind of concentrate on on Mexico. I just think that you know as the uh, you know it gets so populated, the podcast and and uh, you know expatriation kind of um, field these days. There's so many people doing it. I thought it, you know it's better just to concentrate on on where I am. So that's kind of that was my idea of niching down. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so yeah. So how do you do it in Mexico then? I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. Obviously I'm in Mexico. I have, uh, I may or may not have, you know, one of the presidency, uh, visas. Um, so like what, like, do you have like sort of your own in-house team or do you just sort of refer people to a lawyer or if someone comes to you, like, how do you, how do you proceed? Well, uh, yeah, so I definitely, you know, I've, I've been in, if, if it's real estate, I mean, I can give people advice on real estate throughout the entire Mexico and really Latin America is pretty much very similar. Um, and if they're here, if they want to buy something in the area here where I am, then I can personally help them or I have a, you know, a, a kind of a network of people that I work with um, that, you know, depends on the situation, depends on the client, what they're looking for that um, we can set something up. Um, as far as, uh, insurance, I'm a, you know, I'm personally a broker, um, and, uh, for property insurance and health insurance. And, uh, yeah, I, I know, uh, plenty of accountants that I also within my network that I can recommend for people, either if they're more of international digital nomad type, or if they're just strictly, uh, coming down to Mexico to live, that's, those are kind of two different things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I have people that I can recommend for that. Um, a lawyer that helps with immigration. Um, and, you know, I've noticed that a lot of people, so I had a specific uh, kind of concierge program where people would come and I would meet them at the airport uh, or I would send a car to get them. And uh, I basically spend three to- three days with them. Uh, and, 
you know, I do all these things that I talked about with you. I help them open a bank account, um, stuff like that, and uh, help them find a, a rental or a house, you know, do kind of a house tour with them. And also just kind of bring them around. And what I found is that, you know, a lot of people that uh, explore these types of ideas and they, or they see it on the internet, um, a lot of times they just want to come and, and have somebody hang out with them and show them around. And it's, uh, you know, they just want to like have a couple of beers and talk to you about that because, you know, they don't really have a lot of people that they know that they can explore these ideas with. So I found that a lot of times it's just, you know, a lot of that people want to uh, connect, bounce ideas off of off of somebody that, more, that knows more about exploratory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And ha- do you feel like the concierge thing is like a, a good model? Does it kind of work for you? Uh, if not in person, like online, cause yeah, I find a lot of people, they just, um, you know, they're not big planners or they're not, you know, they just want some, they're just in a position in their life where, you know, they'd rather someone do everything for them. And so I'm kind of getting into this more putting together like a package, whether for, you know, a couple thousand bucks and mm-hmm. help them plan their trips. And for some people it might, you know, they have different purposes. Some, but I found a lot of people it's kind of with a retirement spin, but different, different cases. Yeah. Well, you know, I, here's what I'd say is don't let, you know, any, anybody, even myself, you know, tell you what might be a good idea or not. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I've known friends of mine that have done things that I've thought were way too expensive or nobody's going to buy, but especially if you have some good videos or some marketing, whatever it's, it's, you know, people have been successful with things that I didn't think get off the ground. So you know, it's, you have to, it's, it's very creative, you know, with a lot of the online stuff, whether it's a, maybe it's a mm-hmm. course or maybe it's an in-person class, or maybe it's an online class, or maybe it's a PDF or, you know, just try to think to how, you know, what people would want, um, in that type of situation, your exact avatar of the person that, that's looking for that, how much they're willing to pay and stuff like that. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of endless, what you can come up with. No, for sure. For sure. Um, all right. I have a couple uh, pretty specific Mexico questions that will hopefully be high value uh, for the audience. So the first one would be around uh, fideicomisos, which I'm sure you know is like a uh, like a trust vehicle that needs to be set up in Mexico if you want to buy real estate within 50 kilometers of the water of the ocean or within 100 kilometers of the border. And actually one thing, and so that's kind of like the, the land restrictions in Mexico is that foreigners cannot buy land within 50 kilometers of the ocean unless they set up this fideicomiso structure, uh, which is my understanding. And then what's cool about, say, San Miguel or buying land um, sort of somewhere in the, in the center of the country is that you don't need to set up the fideicomiso, which would have basically lower overhead costs and lower uh, annual ongoing maintenance costs. Cause in San Miguel, you could just buy in your own name. Correct. Yeah. And so, so you, you know, is there a question or, um, well that I guess is a big sort of pitch up, but yeah. So, um, so I kind of wanted to maybe ask a couple different questions about sort of buying real estate in Mexico. I think basically anyone that's come to Mexico in the past two years, uh, has seen a lot of like opportunity in real estate and pretty much everyone I know is talking about putting together like a little real estate fund and getting some Airbnbs going or buying a second home, things like that. Um, 
<laughs> I guess I was going to ask you about the Fide Camisos, but then I kind of explained it. But Everything you um, said was correct. Yeah. Everything I said was correct. Um, <laughs> I mean, but honestly, I've set up a lot of these yeah. Fido Camisos. It's not a big deal. It's just a trust. You know, you have to go to a bank to set it up. It's $700 or something like that. And, you know, 400 a year. And, uh, and that's it. And you keep it. It's not technically a trust uh, for tax purposes, but that's getting kind of in the weeds. But, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine, but yeah, actually, you know, a lot of people have some idea about a hundred year lease or something like that. And that's not true. You can come down here on a tourist visa and you can here in San Miguel, you can buy a house in a week. And, uh, and so, yeah, no problem. You don't need to set up anything. So let's, let's talk about real estate. I'm just going to kind of, it'll be a little bit bouncing around, but okay. So let's just say you did do a Fide Camiso. Uh, 400 bucks sounds pretty good. I thought it was more like a thousand a year. Um, so what if you then become a Mexican citizen a couple of years down the, uh, down the line, I imagine it would be a bit of a headache to sort of unwind the Fide Camiso and then put the property in your own name. Have you ever dealt with that? I haven't done that. And that, those were prices from a long time ago. I haven't, I haven't set one up for a while. I used to set them up a lot when I lived in Acapulco, but, um, mm-hmm. since I'm here, I haven't set up one in a long time, but, um, so that, that you might be right. It might be closer to a thousand by now. Probably is. Um, and I've, and honestly, I don't have any uh, experience bringing it back into somebody's name. But I don't see why it would be too big of a problem. You just get a lawyer to do it. I don't. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, just a little cost. I mean, yeah. well, there could be like real estate taxes or something like that fees. Well, I guess that's something to keep in mind, you know, here in Mexico is that uh, if you're, if you can say that your house is your primary residence, uh, you know, there's different ways that you can prove that, but uh, you can only have one primary residence in Mexico and then you do not have to pay the capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. And I think if foreigners buy real estate in Mexico, they would have to pay property gains tax. But once you become a temporary or permanent resident, I believe uh, then that that uh, homeowner's rule would apply and it would be yeah. capital gains free. Yep. Yeah, because you can't have you can't say that's your permanent residence if you're not even a, a resident. <laughs> uh-huh. And so we know obviously as citizens you have greater ability to buy real estate, uh, oceanfront and whatnot. Do you know of any differences between temporary and permanent residents? Do you know if there's any uh, perks or benefits that a permanent resident would have that a temporary would not maybe around that capital gains things or, or other things that you've seen before? No, not at all. So it'd be the same. Yeah. Okay. And so how easy would it be for me to buy a property in San Miguel? So let's just say you pitch it up for me, say, Hey, Hey Vance, like I have this hundred K Casa Colonial in the center of San Miguel, do you well, want you're not it? Getting, you're not getting one for that price in the center. <laughs> <laughs> round number, round number. Yeah. And then, uh, so I'm like sick, I'm down. Like, just tell me how to send the money. What, what is, what does that process look like? How long is it going to take, et cetera? Oh, if you couldn't come. Well, I mean, I'll come, I have, come? I, I'll come if I have to, I guess, but yeah, just like tell, so let's just say I want to buy some in San Miguel. I got the money in the States or Canada um, what, what happens then? Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, if you didn't want to come, then we'd have to get a power of attorney, you know, which is easy enough. Uh, and there's ways that that can be done from afar, even if you're in the States. Uh, and then once you have a power of attorney, then, 
you know, then your agent uh, could set, you know, so if that would, you know, if I was here helping you, then I could do the whole process with the lawyer, get the, you know, get it signed. And uh, yeah, you set up an escrow and um, that's, you know, you put a deposit and then the, they have the closing and then, uh, you know, then the, the full amount is deposited and then that's it. I mean, that can be, it depends on who the, the seller is. If you had the, you know, money in the U.S., you can, and they have a U.S. account, you can just send it right, you know, wire it through the U.S. A lot of um, even Mexicans have U.S. accounts and they like to be paid directly in the U.S. rather than here or in another country. It doesn't matter. Um, and so, yeah, it just depends on the situation where the money is, who's paying and who's the, what the, uh, what the seller wants to do. But yeah, it's pretty okay. easy, you know, for people that are, you know, interested, maybe they don't know about how things work here. I mean, it's, it's very similar to the U S uh, you know, you have Coldwell Banker and Remax and Sotheby's and all these big companies, uh, and they operate here just, you know, very similar, uh, to how they do, um, in every other country. And, uh, so yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Maybe some things that are a little bit different, but for the most part, it's, it's very similar. Like for instance, that one thing that's different is they have to sit there and read to you the, the closing documents, the lawyer has to read out loud and you have to sit there and they read the whole contract, which is kind of a uh, annoying, they don't do that in the U S you just signed, you know, a big stack of papers, but that's part of the law here. So, um, and they also, you have to sign it exactly, exactly like your signature is like they're very uh, particular about your signature that it has to look like <laughs> your regular signature. So. Mm -hmm. And is it like relatively easy to get the money transferred down? Do you have issues where like, you know, Wells Fargo doesn't want to release the money to Mexico? It can be, it can be a problem. I've had, you know, depending on, on how big the wire is, if it's a big wire, you might have to actually go to the U S and do it in person. Um, uh -huh. So, you know, it just depends on the amount and where it's going and stuff like that. There's a lot of, you know, banks are weird these days. You know, they red flags all over the place. So. Dude, maybe maybe I'll be engaging your services at some point in time because, yeah, yeah and I would love to do it maybe somewhere. And I think about where could I do it where I don't have to do the Fido Camiso. Uh, I guess it's not the biggest deal at the end of the day, but it's kind of nice not to have, not to worry about it and the, the cost and stuff. So. Any, anywhere sort of in the middle. So it could be San Miguel, Guanajuato, uh, Guadalajara, maybe down in Chiapas, like San Cristobal or something, maybe even Merida. Um, so there's definitely a lot of like good spots in the center where, um, you know, it's, it's a somewhere that's livable, growing, should be a good spot. Do you live there? Do you live in, in Guadalajara? Are you just visiting? Um, well, I, I do more of like a digital nomad thing. So I, I bounce around quite a lot. Uh, as I mentioned, Mexico is kind of one of my bases. Just haven't, I don't have like a, a permanent lease or uh, a place, but it's something, you know, I'm thinking, thinking more. You about, like it there? More, you, more like, about, you like, uh, you like uh, spending time in Guadalajara? I like Guadalajara. I, I, I like, um, I need to explore more of the center. Um, but yeah, I like Guadalajara a lot. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I have uh, one of my friends, I do weekly, um, broadcasts with a friend of mine named Hervoya. He lives there. Um, he oh, yeah. has a radio, he has a radio show and he lives in Guadalajara. I'm on there once a week. So yeah, I, I like it there. My, also my brother-in-law lives there. So I'm pretty familiar. Been to Bariachi a lot of times and, um, the, what's that one street with all the bars on it? It's pretty fun. So Chipotepec. Yeah. Chipotepec. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> what's Bariachi? 
Mariachi is a giant mariachi bar. Uh, it's like, and they have uh, <laughs> really sense. extravagant mariachi shows. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah. I'd recommend like, it. Uh, Castle I have uh, some people I know there, so we get uh, front row seats. And so you just like sitting right by the stage and they have this really extravagant mariachi show the whole night. It's a lot of fun. Everybody gets into that's, it. That's funny. <laughs> I didn't know about this. Um, all right. So I'm going to ask you, you know, another one of my main concerns about buying um, real estate in Mexico as a Mexican resident. And I know like you're not a tax lawyer. I'm not a tax lawyer. This is all just sort of like philosophical thoughts, but okay, here's the thing. So let's just say you're a permanent resident in Mexico, right? If you're, you know, this is a country with residency based taxation. It's not a tax haven, as you mentioned. And so if you're spending more than six months a year in Mexico, uh, as a permanent resident, you probably in a lot of situations should be paying tax. Now, a lot of uh, expats and uh, people on these permanent residency visas probably aren't currently paying into the Mexican tax system. Who knows? But here's the thing is that if you layer in and you can kind of fly under the radar, Mexico has historically been pretty chill about these things uh, for temporary and permanent residents who spend more than six months of the year. But here's the thing. If you layer on top of that, buying a property in Mexico especially in your own name. And of course, you know, you'll pay the property tax and, and things like that associated with the house. That's fine. No one's trying to avoid that, obviously. But I feel like you're sort of putting a bigger mm, target on your back uh, for the authorities who would then might start to think like, hmm, like what other, like what else does he have going on? So he's paying property taxes. He's spending over six months of the year. Shouldn't this guy maybe be paying like income tax or have other stuff going on? You know what I mean? Aren't you sort of like increasing your exposure to the system there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in level of risk, but I don't know how, you know, how risky that really you could consider that to be. Uh, you know, everybody, you know, the property tax is pretty straightforward. It just kind of, you know, it arrives the piece of paper and you just go to the bank and pay it. Nobody's really paying attention or watching who's paying or who isn't paying their property, you know, like what you're doing and. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, although Mexico isn't where, uh, a lot of places like the United States are, as far as, you know, regulating all this type of stuff, they're definitely trying, you know, so they'll, they'll get there eventually. So, uh, I guess, you know, we'll see these kind of, you have to just think about, uh, you know, your situation and, um, and, you know, whether you want to take certain risks or not. Yeah. And I obviously like, there's no like clear answer here. And you know, the response is always going to be sort of like, it's up to anyone, but it sort of makes me think that like going back to sort of flag theory and stuff like that, if you did want to get real estate in Latin America, maybe you should consider getting that real estate in somewhere that's at least like a territorial tax system. So that as you're sort of like entering that tax system in a more significant way, you know, your name is written down to a much greater extent than it would be as a, you know, as a non-landowner, like maybe like have that Mexican permanent residence uh, permit, maybe even spend more than six months there if you want. I don't know. But if you were to get real estate, maybe just get that property in, you know, Guatemala or or Panama or something like that, uh, just to sort of 
keep those risks down. And I think that's something that people don't really think about. Um, and I think, uh, you know, sort of advice or, or thoughts that people aren't going to hear anywhere else than, you know, a conversation with guys like us. Yeah. And, and I mean, and obviously, I mean, that's just the immigration aspect or the tax aspect is one part of it. But uh, I mean, also you want a place that if it's, if it's somewhere you're going to be spending time, a place that you like <laughs> in a place that you like, you know what I mean? You don't want to just cause it's uh, maybe it's, you know, more, uh, you know, akin to your, to your tax strategy. If it's in a place that you don't want to live, then that's not, that's no good. Or in a place where that, you know, it looks like, uh, you know, real estate is, uh, is declining. And that's another thing you have to think about is where, where some up and coming places are. Cause you know, hopefully you can make some money on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, we can change topics, I guess. Like, I know it's kind of like a tough one, but it's just something I wanted to throw out there, see if you had any thoughts on it. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're just kind of like, yeah, like <laughs> whatever it works with what, with real estate. I, it's, I mean, yeah, just there, there's no answer there, but it kind of makes me weary about like getting real estate in Mexico, um, or a concern I had, but it's, it, it's tough and stuff. Maybe if you do it, not in your own name, it's a bit of a different situation. It definitely would change the dynamic. Yeah. So you're worried about the, um, Hacienda coming after you because you buy a house in Mexico? A little bit, or just like, you know, you're just more on the radar. Well, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just like having a business somewhere, having a you know property somewhere. You're, you're definitely not the same as just some tourist or digital nomad passing through. So, mm-hmm. thinking about like your your ties holistically. All right, uh, we can we can move on to you know a couple of just like fun questions as we kind of start wrapping up. Um, so, you lived in Acapulco for several years. Now you live in San Miguel. Uh, Acapulco is one of the only um, beach towns on the Pacific side that I haven't been to yet. What did you like about Acapulco, and uh, do you do you miss the do you miss the ocean now? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, when I was there, I was in my mid twenties. All right, so now I'm like in my late thirties. So, well, mm-hmm. so I guess mid to late twenties when I was there, like twenty six, and I said, and uh, so I mean, I was a different person, and. Uh, you know, it's, it's like party town, you know, it's like Miami with less rules, you know, just like, uh, you know, things don't even start opening up until like nine or 10 PM. A lot of times, you know, on the weekends and stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, that for me at the time, you know, especially for when I first got there, uh, it was phenomenal. I mean, the, uh, the sunsets are absolutely beautiful. The beach is fun. Mm-hmm. A lot of people come there to party, a lot of clubs and, a lot of women and, you know, very friendly and yeah, I had a blast, you know, for a while, but then, uh, after a, a few, uh, I was living in a hotel there that was right on the, the, the beach, uh, on the 30th floor in the middle of the bay that you could just see amazing, amazing sunsets. Something I've never seen before, like just purples and blues that would like, you know, you know, the whole room would turn color. And, um, and yeah, I mean, uh, at the time for me, I was having a lot of fun, but, uh, after a couple of years, I just a year and a half, I just kind of, you know, got the ideas like this is, this is not like a good lifestyle. Like, you know what I mean? I, like I wasn't, wasn't a good foundation. I wasn't going to be staying there. And so 
that was when I, I moved down to, uh, to San Miguel. So, but yeah, but no, I mean, Pucco's cool. I mean, I, I don't really like it too much. I think there's better ones. A lot of people go to Puerto Vallarta. A lot of people go to, you know, places around Cancun. Playa del Carmen is a, is a popular place for beaches. Um, Puerto Escondido is cool. I like Sayulita. We usually go to Sayulita, actually. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I think there's better options, you know. But, you know, the, it, uh, another thing about you said that I miss the beach I used to live directly on the beach and I would hear the, so in Acapulco, they have big waves and a a rocky shore. And so you would just hear like big giant (laughs) waves, 24 hours that I could hear from my, my room. And so like, no, I was like, so I, I mean, I heard waves nonstop for years and I was like, I I just wanted to get away from that sound. It was just like in my head, you know? (laughs) I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. But I did uh, used to love like in the afternoon when the sun was going down, I could just go and take my shoes off and go running on the beach, you know, every afternoon, eat a fresh coconut, some, some uh, fresh fish or something like that. And it's just really healthy, you know, way of life. Yeah. I lived for a long time in Playa del Carmen and uh, loved it. Good digital nomad community, lots of online entrepreneurs was ultimately getting a bit bored of Quintana Roo. Um, so decided to do like a really big tour of the Pacific side. So I went to Vallarta, went to Sayulita, went to Mazatlan for the Carnival, uh, took the ferry to La Paz, um, spent some time in La Paz, Cabo San Lucas, San Jose de Cabo. So definitely love in the sunsets on the Pacific side. I think it's awesome. Definitely trying to go down to Manzanillo and uh, Acapulco and Zihuatanejo uh, in the near future. Kind of complete the complete the whole set, basically. Yeah. Cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. I'm, I I think that's um, pretty much all I wanted to cover. I oh I d- I know that uh, we wanted to talk a bit about healthcare, which is one of your main businesses now. And it's really smart, man. This is something that I thought of a lot, which is like, you know, as the percentage of people working online grows, amount of digital nomads grows, people are going to be, and it's like, what can we, what services can we provide uh, to the, to this increasingly large group of uh, remote workers and healthcare is one of the biggest ones. And so you have companies like Safety Wing, um, nomad insurance, something like that. So yeah, tell us a little bit about, uh, the, uh, the healthcare business that, uh, you started and some of the, uh, healthcare concerns that, uh, expats and digital nomads should be aware of. Okay. So first of all, um, there, there's two things that people need to know. There's long-term short-term, uh, policies. Okay. So short-term, uh, it also is like emergency. You can call it emergency insurance. And that's for usually a year or six months, something like that, or less, you know, just for one trip. And it covers you for emergencies or things that happen to you. Maybe it also covers a lot of times if you miss your flight or lose your luggage and things like that. Uh, These are not made to be lived on. That's what I think a lot of people uh, don't understand is that they they think you're just going to be on this um, travel insurance forever. But the problem is, is that uh, every time that you renew your travel insurance, which you have to, uh, then, um, uh, it, everything that happened to you prior to that renewal is considered a pre-existing condition. So the whole idea 
with long-term insurance is that you buy it when you're healthy and you don't have any problems. And then uh, as long as you keep paying your premium with that company, then uh, you are covered for anything that happens, right? So they have to cover you for the rest of your life for any, any condition that comes up that you, that happens to you. So, uh, you know, if, if you do not have long-term coverage and say, you know, you get new and it's something that really screws up your leg and you need like therapy for years and years, that's never going to be covered. There are conditions that you can get, uh, several conditions, you know, say that you got AIDS or something, you're never going to be able to get insurance again. Okay. Ever. So, um, so that's why, you know, it's, uh, when you come down, it's good. You know, you have some emergency insurance in case you get into an accident or um, something like that. You, you know, because a lot of people think everything's cheap in Latin America. And it's true. A lot of things are. You can come down here and do medical tourism and, you know, get your teeth cleaned, get a checkup, <laughs> get, yeah. you know, things like that. But uh, they do have a very robust private and public, uh, you know, uh, parallel system. So um, you can go to a yeah, somebody, if, as long as you have a court, which means like if you have a residency, then uh, you can go to a public hospital and they're going to treat you. But I mean, it's, I wouldn't recommend it. You know what I mean? I, I do recommend people like go, if you plan on that being your, your, op, you know, what you're planning on doing, go sit in a hospital and see what the place is like. Because I'm telling you, when you see it, you're not going to think this is the place you need to get surgery or, uh, you know, it's, you know, whatever we just kind of cons- consider like a, a mash unit that man, maybe it's just need some stitches or something. But, um, but the thing is that here in Mexico, they have an amazing private care system. So they have amazing private hospitals, state of the art and all that kind of stuff, but that can get expensive very quickly. Like I said, a lot of people think everything is cheap, but if, you know, the, a lot of times if you have a heart attack, it can get over a hundred grand within a few days very quickly, or you get, you know, we had someone that got, uh, emphysema is like 70 grand within four days, you know, things like that can get very expensive very quickly. Um, and you know, it's great care, but they want to get paid. See the, 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 the thing is that the, the private hospitals, um, if you can't pay, uh, they'll basically just kick you out on the street. So, you know, in the U S you can go to any hospital and they'll just hand you an astronomical bill. Well, that's not the case here, here, you have to show that you can pay. And if you can't pay, then they just kick you out. So, um, if that's why it's good to have, you know, if you have your, your card, if you have some sort of coverage, you show it to the hospital, if anything happens and they're going to pay it directly to the hospital. So, you know, you're not going to get kicked out. Also, you know, if anything, that's going to cost a lot of money, say that you need to go back to the hospital for cancer treatments or something like that, then that's going to get very expensive. And then, so you, it's basically, you know, somebody, uh, you know, relatively young, you know, you can get it for, uh, I don't know, one or two grand a year. Um, and, uh, then that's, that's going to be long-term coverage. That's going to be global and it's going to follow you anywhere in the world. And then, you know, that you're just going to have coverage, uh, for the rest of your life, as long as you continue to pay that, um, that, uh, premium. Global is definitely good because these, you know, American plans that don't extend south of the border, that's yeah. definitely uh, not ideal. Yeah. And they have them that, you know, will cover you in the U.S. Um, or not. It depends, you know, if, if you don't need any U.S. coverage, there are less expensive plans, but a lot of them will go anywhere. So say you're in Mexico, but 10 years, you decide you want to go to Spain, you, ju- you know, you can use the same policy. 
uh, you know, in the 10 years after that, maybe you want to spend some more time in the US or you want to go to Argentina, whatever, then you can have one long-term policy that's going to cover you in all those places. Nice. And so did you, are you a broker for a different company or you started your own company doing this? I'm a, I'm a broker for a larger MGA. Okay. Yeah. And you work specifically with expats and uh, foreigners? It mostly just can't be U.S. residents. Okay. Yeah, I just because we every every company I work with is is not Affordable Care Act compliant. So, um, if you're a U.S. resident, you have to buy it within the Affordable Care Act plans, gotcha. which are like drastically more expensive. Gotcha. And then James, I guess just as we're wrapping up, I I'm uh, I think I read that you know this uh, uh, traveler insurance has grown a lot in the past couple of years. And then I'm guessing probably uh, the the real estate business uh, in San Miguel and in Mexico has been growing a lot in the past couple of years. Could you just comment on kind of uh, what you've seen uh, in the past two years as, as the world has changed for, for what Hon- you do? Yeah, honestly, um, it's it's been pretty much like uh, San Miguel is has always kind of been um, on the radar for a lot of uh, foreigners that want to come down. And so th- there's been ups and downs in real estate. Um, it's doing pretty good now, but I wouldn't say that it's, you know, like way better than it was say five years ago or something like that. I mean, there have been problems, you know, like, uh, you know, obviously when to the beginning of 2020, <laughs> it's pretty much dead. Um, but, uh, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's been pretty steadily up. There's a lot of growth here in San Miguel, which, you know, a lot of people don't like, but, um, it's still a hundred thousand people, something like that very colonial. Um, they're building a giant, uh, mall across the highway here with, uh, you know, a Walmart and all kinds of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that a lot of people like, you know, they, they like to, the, especially the locals, they like the more kind of, uh, uh, colonial and rural feel. So, I mean, it's changing for the better or worse it's happening. So, um, but yeah, the real estate market's pretty good here. It's always been pretty good. And, um, so, you know, a lot of people moving down, a lot of Canadians I've had that were trying to get out of Canada uh, over the last year, tons of Canadians. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's chugging along, you know. What What's the split been between Canadians, Americans, and other foreigners, i.e. Europeans? With me, it's mostly, uh, I guess I could say like a, Oh, 30 Canadians right now, 30% Canadians, 40% Americans. And, uh, well, maybe not, maybe less. I mean, I do get some Europeans and Australians and, uh, stuff like that, but not, not that many. So mostly maybe about like 50, 50 Canadians, Americans almost. Yeah. Or yeah. But then I get maybe that. 10 or 15% uh others. Right. Right. 45, 45, 10. Yeah. Um, I know Ahihik. Uh, on Lake Chapala near me yeah. in, Guala- in in Jalisco is another really big spot for uh, retiring expats. Uh, in terms of like inland cities in Mexico, Ajijic and San Miguel are the first two that come to mind for retiring expats. Merida as well. Um, what would you say are, uh, are there any other like top cities in Mexico uh, that are sort of uh, hot spots for retiring expats and any uh, any like 
up and coming retirement destinations in Mexico? Well, obviously the biggest city is Mexico city, uh, for foreigners in general. Um, just mostly because of jobs and things like that. But most of the foreigners that live here live in Mexico city just because it's by far the biggest city, uh, where you, where you are, Guadalajara is also very popular, um, with people and I, like you mentioned, I, is a very old population. Um, I don't imagine probably 10 years. It's going to be such a big, uh, expat community. I guess we'll see because, you know, a lot of them are just going to be dying off, I think. Uh, and, um, (laughs) In all seriousness, uh, and uh, San Miguel also has a, a, a lot of um, retirees here. You know, older uh, population, uh, but there are also younger people here. So it's not all um, all that. Especially uh, now that a lot more people can work online remotely and stuff like that. There've been a lot of younger young professionals and stuff moving here. Um, Puerto Vallarta has been extremely popular um, the last couple of years. I've noticed a lot of people have been wanting to move there and. I mean, it's nice. It's a nice place, so I can see why. Um, again, I mentioned Sayulita, San Pancho is another place there by Sayulita that uh, people mm-hmm. like to go. Um, Sayulita's a little more touristy. gets very packed on weekends and holidays. Um, Oaxaca City, a lot of people like. Um, Puerto Escondido is in Oaxaca as well. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of a different vibe. But it's, again, kind of smaller, kind of like San Miguel and Colonial. Um, you mentioned Merida. Merida's nice. A lot, most a lot of people um, complain about the heat there. It's very hot and humid. So, uh, but it is a, you know, a metropolitan city. And, you know, that whole area there of Tulum, Playa Carmen, you can kind of Cancun, you can mesh them all together. They're all pretty close. And, you know, somebody could go there and, and find out what they like better. Um, I think I think the, the, the big rise in a number of people going to Tulum is kind of uh, alarming. And it's not great because uh, the infrastructure is not made for all those people. And um, it's, uh, I don't think it, it can handle much, many more people. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the sewer system and the electricity grid and all that stuff. I mean, they got a lot of the hotels and stuff running off generators. And uh, anyways, uh, we'll, so we'll see over the next few years how that, how that is. But that's a very popular place for people to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, here in, uh, I would consider, you know, San Miguel de Allende, Guanajuato is very close. Uh, Guanajuato is the capital of the state, Guanajuato, which is San Miguel is mm-hmm. located in. And also within about 45 minutes to an hour away is Querétaro. Querétaro is a larger city. A lot of um, expats have liked that place. They've been moving there lately. I'm not a big fan of Querétaro. I mean, I go there um, if there's something I need there because it's a, a much bigger city. They've been a lot more strict and uh, compliant with the covid measures so uh yeah still you know like 90 percent of people running around in Querétaro with masks on and stuff so you don't really see that here so uh yeah so um so yeah i would say that that's rundown of a lot of the big options unless i'm missing some but uh yeah i think those are a lot of the ones that people go to yep that that about echoes uh my thoughts on it that's awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get out there. Uh, I hear about San Miguel a lot. I hear, I hear uh, everyone from Leon and the surrounding region. They come into San Miguel to party on weekends as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, awesome. Well, James, man, you've been uh, super generous with your time. We basically just hit like the 90 minute mark, um, so we'll get to to closing out. So uh, before we go, do you have any? Um, 
uh, you know, announcements uh, or, uh, you know, things you want to promote, share with the audience? Yeah, not really uh, any announcements, but um, I do have a, uh, a link and that's my name, James Guzman uh, uh, .com. And, uh, and there that has a link to the uh, Borderless Health Insurance, Borderless Blog, my YouTube channel. And you can also schedule, if you did want to schedule some sort of a consultation or something, you can do it directly from that link. And so it kind of has all my stuff there, whatever you're looking for, it's just uh, jamesguzman.com. Awesome, man. And yeah, just wanted to thank you again for, you know, everything you've given to the community. Like I said, uh, your podcast was early on helping me uh, to put me on the trajectory that I am on today. Help sort of, it was like your podcast and like Travel with the Boss by Johnny FD and um, the Travel Tropical like MBA Tropical yeah, and, MBA, yeah. And Tropical MBA with uh, Dan Andrews. Dan Andrews, yeah. And those were kind of like the big three that a they were like the only ones that existed uh like five seven years ago and they kind of just helped sort of like open up uh the the digital nomad world and the and everything so um yeah you definitely kind of got your place in history so i'm doing my best here to you know to to help solidify that for you (laughs) cool man i appreciate that i'm glad that helped you awesome so again my guest today has been james guzman of the borderless podcast, jamesguzman.com. Another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. James, thanks for joining me, man.